Welcome to the Peaceful Power Podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Clausen, and today I have Marissa Angeletti on with us. She's a semantic therapist, Ayurvedic practitioner, movement-based trauma specialist, and therapeutic movement educator and practitioner. So I'm super excited to have Marissa on today. Um, we did Shakti School together uh, a couple years ago now, and so and we were in the same cohort, I believe, as well. So I'm so excited to chat with you today, Marissa. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and. I feel this resonance of being like the first cohort, right, of, of this feminine form style and just journeying through those two years together. Um, really excited to talk more. Yay. So I want to know, I always love to have when I have people who have studied Ayurveda, like how did that stumble into your life? Because there's usually always a story of how people discovered it. So how did you discover Ayurveda? Yeah, I love the word stumble. <laughs> it feels very, very accurate. Um, so my, my story is I, I came to yoga uh, actually late in my teens as a result of my own trauma and my own disordered eating and, you know, was on a yoga journey for a few years, loving it, deepened into yoga, um, eventually did teacher trainings and started teaching and, you know, did a whole swath of things with yoga um, in my 20s. And what started to happen for me was that I was working with people and their bodies, which house their emotions and their life experience. And despite all the training I had done, I really felt like I wanted to hold a greater amount of space for what was coming up for folks. And that led me to my graduate school degree in somatic psychology. And while I was in graduate school, I was getting a little bit deeper into my yoga studies, in particular, Tantra, um, had found Katie Silcox, our teacher. And as we all know, you know, she shares much about Ayurveda. And I started to see a lot of possibility in Ayurveda for being a little bit more comprehensive than just yoga on its own for my own well-being. Um, and as I was studying Ayurveda for myself, what started to happen was I'm in this graduate school program studying, you know, psycho-emotional somatic patterning in, in people. And I started to see all these similarities between what Ayurveda teaches and the way somatic work works. And that led me to write my thesis on Ayurveda and dance movement therapy for emotional health. And <clears throat> excuse me, that got published. And when it got published, I was like, oh, like maybe I'm onto something beyond just my, <laughs> my own personal, you know, excitement and interest in this. I better, you know, get more formally studied and trained. Um, so that led me to Kripalu, where I did my first schooling in Ayurveda. And then a few years later was when Katie launched Shakti School. And I, of course, signed up for that and did levels one and two. Love that. Oh, okay. I'm like, there's so many threads that we can pull on just in the <laughs> background. I'm like, this is, I'm so fascinated by all of it. And, yeah. um, you know, first I think I want to start with, um, I don't know if I've talked about semantic therapy at all on the program. So, you know, if people are brand new to that, like what is that, um, you know, maybe kind of starting from like square one in case people are like, okay, I've heard of it, but I'm not quite sure what that is. Totally. So somatic therapy is body-based psychotherapy and the word soma actually means of the body. And what we're talking about when we say body-based is that there's a fundamental functional unity between your body and your mind. So that what happens in one of those realms of being will inherently impact the other one and vice versa. And, you know, some of us are kind of familiar with this from yoga, let's say. Um, so the idea is that since body and mind are connected, we can use somatic work to explore the ways in which the body and its lived experiences, which show up as sensation, breath patterns, postures in the body, gestures in the body, movements, all the way up to, you know, expressions, um, that those things can give us insight into our psycho-emotional being. And so what begins to happen is that the body actually becomes the point of intervention, like the thing we can use to 
support ourselves. And it also becomes the, the point of information, right? Like what's happening right now as we're experiencing something or as we are processing something that maybe has happened to us in the past. Um, an example I love to give that, let me back up. I think that somatic stuff is far more familiar and accessible than it might sound like. And what I mean is a pretty familiar example is like, oh my gosh, I have butterflies in my stomach. So when someone says that, they're not naming their emotion, right? They're not saying, this is what's happening to me right now. They're saying, this is how my body is responding to what's happening in or around me. And so the somatic approach could really take two uh, pathways with this, the first being like purely physiological. So if it's, I've got butterflies in my stomach, the physiology of that is if your nervous system is sensing threat or danger, what happens is that the blood flow to your stomach and your digestive organs slows down. Because if there's a tiger in the room, like who cares about the chia pudding you ate for breakfast and you know what sandwich you're going to eat later? Like digestion is a, is a non-issue. Um, and when the blood flow slows down, the oxygen to that part of the body is restricted. And when the oxygen is restricted, you can get this kind of fluttering feeling like a butterfly. And so just purely physiologically, you know, we could say, okay, how do we orient the body and the nervous system to the physical reality of this present moment, um, you know, get some safety back, do some work to return blood flow to that area. And again, that might be like something like yoga. Um, we're experiencing a physical something or other, and we're going to do a physical something or other to shift that in some way. Um, but the other thing, and I think this is really one of the, the great powers of somatic work is we dive into that sensation and we get really, really curious about it. And we start to go, well, what part of the stomach are you feeling the butterflies? How, how big are they? Um, are they fluttering fast? Or are they fluttering slow? What happens if you just pay attention to them? Um, do they need something from you right now? Or are they trying to tell you something? And what I often find when we connect to our bodily experiences, we access an entirely different realm of understanding of what we're going through. And potentially even associations to that experience than we would if we were just verbally or mentally exploring it. Oh, that's so fascinating. And one of the things that when you had talked about the butterflies and something like this kind of, um, you know, just over there this past weekend, we were at a basketball game and it was a close game. And it was funny because it's like right around the time I would normally have dinner. And so like, I was hungry, but then like you get so nervous. And so there's no, like no thought of digestion. Cause you're just, you're like, Oh my gosh, it's such a close game. Like who's going to win. And so watching that. And then uh, my friend that was with too, we had said the same thing. We're like, okay, now I'm realizing we're both really, we're starving. Yeah. Like, we're ready for dinner. Cause like, you know, they won the game and it, you know, those emotions passed and it waved through, but that's kind of what I was thinking of. Like the same yeah. with that digestion of like, Oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm nervous and that like, yes. everything is just like going to the nerves and then being, I mean, just because of, you know, the past couple of years, we haven't been around an environment and feeling all of, you know, the whole arena was nervous for the game, you know? So all of those emotions that you're feeling and you're like, I, there's no way I can eat anything right now. Cause everyone's just on high alert. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you talking about the last few years and, you know, presumably the impact of COVID right. And being around fewer people and all of a sudden, at a basketball game with bright lights and loud sounds and tons so of people, <laughs> like, of course, your nervous system is going to be a little riled up by that and tell you like, hey, you know what, Andrea, um, we don't, we don't need to worry about digestion right now. Like that's not as important because we're getting all this stimuli at once that we haven't had in a while. Yeah. Yeah. And my 
my six-year-old, like he, I mean, he really hasn't been to anything like this before just because he was so little the last time. And he like, cause the, the crowd, it was, you know, some high school kids and they were just very loud and he put his hands over his ears. And I was like, Oh, this is so interesting to watch. Cause this is just too much for him. Like, and he's <laughs> easily excited anyway. And, you know, he's just like too loud, too loud. And, you know, I'm just watching his little nervous system, like trying to like, keep it together. You know, we brought a little mm-hmm. activity for him so he could kind of just hone in on that. Otherwise just so much going on. And I think that's such an important thing to see, you know, in kiddos, you know, your daughter's pretty young still, but like, that's something that I've kind of noticed with him as he's getting older, like how he's affected, you know, out Mm -hmm. in public. And and again, probably the last few years hasn't helped him because he hasn't had that interaction, you know, with a ton of people. So it is interesting just to kind of notice all ages, you know, experience this. Absolutely. Yeah. And kids can be such a powerful mirror. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. Um, Because one thing that can happen with us as adults is we're getting all those signals, but maybe they've been around for a long time, or we've been overstimulated for a long time, or we've just been conditioned in such a way that we start to take them as our norm, you know, as our baseline, instead of as like, oh, something might be a little bit off. Um, So being around a kid who's potentially more pure in a way with their response can be really insightful. Okay. I want to know kind of now about movement. Cause this is something that, yeah. um, you know, obviously I've been in the personal training space for years and, um, you know, movement to help heal trauma. And I have many clients in the last few years who are, who talk about this more, like they, they really enjoy just the movement to release. Like, and I've told, I'm like, I've had almost every single client cry in front of me. I'm like, mm-hmm. cause it is like that release. I'm like, we store stuff and it's coming out. So I want to know kind of, you know, your take on this from a practitioner of, you know, trauma and movement, what, what's going on with that? Yeah. I love this. There's, there's so much to say here. So everyone hang on. (laughs) Um, We can think of trauma as a a deviation from that kind of baseline norm, right. Of, of more or less relative safety um, based on perceived or actual threat to ourselves or, or somebody else. Um, And what happens when that threat presents is that your physiology is the very first thing to respond. respond. So the trauma itself and the symptoms that you may experience as a result of it are physical. And the nervous system responses that we hear about most commonly, fight, flight, freeze, and faint, um, that happens first before you, you know, are aware of the emotion connected to it, before you have the thought pattern to it, you may feel, oh my gosh, my heart is beating fast, or my muscles are tensing up, my breath has changed. Um, And all of these things happen as a survival function, right? If you, if you are going to flee the threat, your breath has to change, your muscles need to tense up, right? Your heart is beating faster because your body is preparing to mobilize in a different way. Um, But what happens if the trauma and its impact are left unresolved is those physical signs stick around and the symptoms. So one way that shows up is physical armoring. You might see, you know, let's say it was a flea. So you might have something going on like a, a tilt in the pelvis or, you know, a head jutting forward, something like that. You might have aches and pains in the body. You might even have like a blood pressure, something going on. And it's not that any of those things are invalid. It's that the root cause of them being there is your body is not in a natural state. And so you might go to the doctor or the Ayurveda practitioner or whomever, and they say, um, here's this remedy. But the remedy, because it's potentially only treating the, the symptom rather than what caused the symptom, doesn't alleviate it. Mm-hmm. And so a somatic or a movement-based approach is one we would call bottom-up. And bottom-up means that We are working with our physiology. We're working with our body in order to reprogram our nervous system first. Because when the tiger walks into the room and you decide, or your nervous system decides it wants to flee, the way it decides that is based on 
the physical information that shifts in your body and that's registered in your brainstem first. So like the tiger walks into the room, heart racing, muscles tensing, right? Tunnel vision, all of this, that happens first. That information then gets pushed up to what we call your emotional brain, your limbic system. And your limbic system goes, oh, well, a minute ago, I was just drinking my chai and talking to Andrea and feeling fine. And now my, my heart rate's different. My vision's different. My muscles are different. Something is wrong. So the alarm bells sound. And once the alarm bells sound in the emotional brain, that information goes up to the thinking part of your brain, the neocortex. And that's the part of your brain that, you know, can go, hmm, do I want the oat milk in my chai or the almond milk in my chai, right? It's like nuanced, refined thought. So what we'll find with trauma, if we're not incorporating the body or we're not incorporating the movement in some way, oftentimes is we're doing a lot of talking, we're doing a lot of verbal processing, but it might feel like we're kind of traveling in circles. And the reason for that is the part of your brain that governs the talking and the thinking is impacted by the physiological stuff that is sending the alarm bell signal. So the movement has to come in first as a way to assess how that experience impacted the physiology and the ways in which it may still be impacting or it might be stuck. And so from my perspective, that can look like a big range, right? It might be sensation, awareness of the body, breath work to gestures all the way up to like full body movement. We wanna be thinking about what does it mean to reestablish safety in the body and in the world around this person again? Um, the most important thing I would say in allowing the, is allowing the nervous system to do now what it was unable to do at the time of the trauma. So let's say that tiger comes into my office and instead of fleeing, I go into a freeze response and, and it works. Like it keeps me safe from the tiger, right? But what might happen for me if I'm stuck in that for whatever reason, right? It was, it was traumatic. I don't have support. The support I have isn't really working for me. Um, Afterwards, I may be questioning, why did I freeze? Like, why didn't I try to run away? And so a movement-based approach will gradually assess how and where is the body still experiencing freeze, work on kind of unfreezing, right? Literally creating more mobility in the body very gradually and eventually sequencing out to a place of, of flee, right? So physically experiencing, what would it be like to get into a posture of flee and to actually run away since that was maybe my um, desire at the time, but I was unable to. All the while exploring the responses, the sensations and the movements that pop up when we're moving from freeze to flee. Cause we don't just wanna go oh, well, I'm frozen. I have this hunched over, very still position. I'm going to jump up and I'm going to run as fast and as hard as I can <laughs> because that can be super dysregulating. So we need to do what's called titration. We take small steps over time and we touch in to what's challenging and then we touch out to something that's resourcing. And then we go back to the challenge point because we're more resourced. We come back out, we get resourced again, right? And we kind of do this back and forth um, until we get to that place of nervous system resolution and sequence. Okay, so I have a question on this because I actually yeah. have this, I think you're, what you just said, it kind of is gonna answer mine, but I just wanna get your opinion on this because I've had this kind of happen recently with a client and she's going through some, you know, she has a therapist who's dealing with trauma. And one thing that she had noticed during our session. So she, we used to lift weights and we've just been doing yoga basically the past two years. She wants to get back to lifting weights. So we did one session 
And she said, I don't know if I can do that again, because she went into, she felt fine during the session, but then after like her body, she was like, I just went into like freak out mode. It was like mm-hmm. fight or flight. And she just mm-hmm. got like, you know, of childhood trauma that kind of got brought up and stirred up. And so I was like, okay, you know, did that happen? I call it this mindful movement. And it's just body weight practice for a long repetitive, like five minutes. We're doing the same move. Um, all the, those exercises, we did that for, you know, probably a month before we tried lifting weights. And she was like, no, that was fine. That was like, that was good. Yoga has mm-hmm. been fine. But then the weightlifting, whatever started up in her. So if she, and she wants to get back to it, like she doesn't want to run from it, you know? So mm-hmm. would I be kind of the same thing of, you know, okay, let's do some of the mindful movement that I do with some yoga and then throw in a couple, you know, strength exercises and then back to the mindful movement yoga and just kind of work a session like that with her rather than, Hey, let's go 30 minutes and just lift weights. Would that be kind of a solution then? Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. Um, you know, one thing with, with trauma is that it shows up unexpectedly. It shows up without choice. Right. And it, it impinges safety. And so when we're, we're looking at trauma resolution, we want to offer choice. We want to take away the aspect of surprise mm-hmm. and we want to reestablish safety. Um, so whatever you can do, as you're leading or working with somebody, um, maybe that's mapping out the arc of the session. Um, that's also perhaps giving options in, in the movement that you're doing. Um, and then it's doing it in that really slow incremental way where maybe a 30 minute session <clears throat> at first is largely yoga with like one strength training uh, for a set period of time, right? And letting that client develop safety and familiarity with that one thing. And then, you know, the next set period of time, you added another thing. Um, This is really what we call the window of tolerance, which I can Mm -hmm. go into if if that's helpful. Um, I think so. So the idea with window of tolerance is that we each have a, a threshold for experiencing things every single day. And if you think about a literal window, you have the bottom of the window and the top of the window. The bottom of the window is what we would call our hypo responses. So your, your freeze and your faint would live there um, where the, the body process kind of slows down, right? Things are getting cooler, um, moving slower and getting more still. And then the top of the window would be that more hyperactive response, like a, a fight or a flea where things in the body are getting mobilized and activated and hotter and faster. So it happens on any given day where you're at your desk drinking chai, talking to a friend, um, is that you have ebbs and flow in that window. So for instance, when you first wake up, you might be a little bit closer to the bottom of the window because you just woke up. Um, Then you get out of bed and you stretch and you scrape your tongue and you have your lemon water, right? And you go through your morning routine, whatever that is. And you kind of rise up a little bit in your, in your threshold. Um, And then, you know, you've got to commute somewhere. So you level out, but then you talk to a friend. So you go up, right? And the idea is you kind of ebb and flow within your container throughout the day. But what happens with trauma is that the window closes a bit or a lot, depending on the person and and the experience, but it closes. And so now the bottom of the window is higher and the top of the window is lower. And you might have the same exact day of waking up, getting out of bed, scrape tongue, lemon water, commute somewhere, talk to a friend, but the same activities because your, your threshold is, is more narrow. Um, the same activities are now going to provoke a trauma response in the nervous system or what we could call a trigger. And so when we're working with trauma, what we want to do is gradually, safely over time, take steps towards the edge of the window, which is now smaller, hang out there for a while. We're still in the window. We haven't gone beyond it, but we're getting close, right? And as we get close to that newly defined threshold, we bring in skills to say, here's you know, what's happening, physical 
uh, reality of the moment. Here's how to establish safety. Here's how to explore the sensation. Here are some practices and tools and all these things. Um, and the hope with that is that over time, you start to re-expand your window back to its original threshold and sometimes even beyond the original threshold. And that's what we could call post-traumatic growth. Um, so thinking about you with your client, right? We want to stay in this window, right, of safety, which for now sounds a lot like yoga, you know? And because the yoga feels accessible and safe, but there's also a desire to return to the strength training, we just, boop, like we drop it in, <laughs> in, a, in a small dose that's like sandwiched between yoga. And if mild uh, dysregulation comes up, we use practices that we know are gonna help that person reconnect to safety because we wanna keep her in her current window, but we also want to help that window uh, reestablish itself. Mm. I mean, this all makes so much sense because that's where I told her after, I was yeah. like, I don't think we should continue with strength training. I think you're, you we need to take it back. I'm like, if anything, yeah. the mindful movement where it's just body weight and we build up slowly, you know, and she was like, whatever you think, you know, I'm like, mm -hmm. that's kind of what my gut was telling me was like, okay, nope, if that's the response, let's take it back. And then I also like, I mean, I have it all, I have the workout all created. Nobody goes in into their Google drive and looks at their workout before they see me, but it's there. But I like the surprise. Cause I think the surprise factor probably for her is something where I'll have to maybe even just make it even more accessible, like email it and be like, here, just glance at the document so you can see, you know, cause I kind of do the other things, but I was like the surprise thing I think for her could really helpful. You know, I have it laid out that way you can see it. And then, you know, where we're going, um, you know, just little things like that, that again, you know, I have this there, but people don't necessarily, we don't realize like, oh, something like surprise where I could glance it ahead of time. Like I personally, I like to know what I'm going to do before we do it. You know, and a lot of teachers will do that too. Here's what we're going to do in class today. Exactly. And lay it out. And it just, yep. it automatically is like, oh, cool. Okay. I know what mm -hmm. to expect. So yes. I like that. I like that idea. Yeah. And one other way you can do that too, um, you know, definitely inform the student or the client. <clears throat> Here's what's coming. Um, but when I used to teach studio classes, I would often like open and close in the same ways, right? So you have that kind of continuity there as well. What do you do? Um, Cause I know I have some mm -hmm. yoga teachers that listen. If, you know, how can you make even a yoga class? Like, do you, how do you introduce maybe the class concept or any poses that you might mm -hmm. be, you know, peak poses that maybe, do you want to say all this before? Or how much do you go into before a class? Me personally, I, I, I go into a lot. <laughs> so, you know, I'll say, hi, everybody. Welcome. Um, let's say this is a, um, this is a slow flow level one, two. Here's what that means. You know, we're going to be taking vinyasa to style movements, but moving at a more moderate pace to allow you to deepen into your response, uh, to your breath and each shape and the energetic, um, today our class is going to be focusing on the emergence of the spring season and how that may be impacting us right now. So we're going to be doing movement that is warming, that is circulating, that is lightening, and is a little bit more dynamic in its expression. Um, so I'll just kind of lay out at the top, like what's, what's going on. And then um, circling back to Kripalu, actually, they have a really lovely technique called Brifwa and it's um, breathe, relax, feel, watch, allow. I love that. So, you know, you're doing, let's say the peak pose and you get to say to your students, um, breathe into the sensation that you're feeling in your body. See if you can relax your jaw. <laughs> um, feel what emotions or thoughts are being stirred up by this experience watch them as they come and go and allow yourself to be here for five more deep breaths. Um, so that I really love because it comes from this invitational place instead of we're doing heart openers. I used, I used to see this all the time. Like we're doing heart openers and oh, heart opening and backbending. It's so great because it taps you into the love and the joy and the connectivity, you know, within you. And 
that's one potentiality for some people. <laughs> but the other potentiality is, oh my gosh, like this is really kind of threatening and vulnerable. And I have a lot of armoring around my heart and maybe it feels scary. And so I think one of the biggest things working one-on-one -on -one or with a group is just never to assume or project the meaning of the experience onto your student or your client, especially coming from a, a trauma-informed place. And again, to always offer choices. <clears throat> so you have your asana, you have option one, two, three, you know, you can be here or you can be here or you can be here. I mean, I, that's <clears throat> from being in the training space, like that's, and teaching group fitness. And I've taught seniors for 12 years now. And so that's a group where I've completely I've changed how I teach and see the body just because like, you can't, I, I never assume how it's going to go for them because we've had hip replacement, shoulder replacement. And some of them have had so many different things. They don't remember. And they're like, this is the main ones. And so I never try to be like, this is what it should look like. I'm like, here is an option. This is what it could look like. You can, you know, stay seated. I am like teaching those classes. I'm like on the chair, standing up in between. I'm all over because I, there's so many different possibilities for them. And it's going to look different for everyone. I always make sure I'm like, it's going to look different for you. And I think that's why a lot of them are liking the online versus in person, because mm. in person, it's sometimes scarier to take the other option, the option that your body really wants, but mm -hmm. everyone else is doing option A. And you're like, I really want option B, but nobody's doing yeah. it. When at home, they're like, great, I can take option B and nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. Totally. When, nobody cares if you do in class, but like in our head, we think other people care. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot there around being seen and again, finding safety and group. Um, I, I mean, I could talk about this forever. Like as a teacher, if everyone's doing option A and there's one student who's maybe like hesitating you as the teacher do option B, you know what I mean? Like you model that this is actually on the menu and it's okay to take it. Um, and the other thing I was going to say, oh, about the seniors and the different experiences they've had in their body. Um, a common pitfall I used to see, and I still see sometimes is, this is specifically with yoga and teaching, um, you need to ask for permission if you want to, you know, do an adjustment, let's say on the hips or the lower back or anywhere near the chest, um, because those are the quote, vulnerable places. And I completely disagree with that because any body part can be vulnerable. Any body part can hold trauma. There's no hierarchy of, well, you know what, like my, the knee is safe because it's, it's just a knee. So you don't need to approach with caution there. Um, you absolutely need to approach with caution. Anytime you're working with anyone else's body, you need to have consent. You need to have permission. Don't make assumptions um, that because it's a knee or an ankle or whatever, that it's trauma-free. <laughs> oh yeah. I, yes, I can say that too from the training space <laughs> for many years. And I'm like, Ooh, yeah, no. Like, you know, sometimes people just get people in positions. I was like, yeah, no, I never, I'm like, this is why we get good at cueing. Use your words, get them there. Yes. I'm like, I don't ever touch a client just cause it, I mean, now I'm virtual and I've been virtual and probably will stay virtual, but in person, I'm like, no, like I, my cues get better because I am not going to touch them because that's just not a boundary that I want to cross. And potentially mm -hmm. again, trigger trauma that you, they might not know is there too. So you're just, I mean, there's so many layers. And I think, you know, as a professional, just being super mindful of that, you know, if you do work with bodies and, you know, there's, there's so much there. Yeah. Yes. You know, oh. your body is your everything. Yeah. It's, it's how you move through the world. It holds everything. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, I'm like, gosh, I want to, we can keep pulling that thread and I am <laughs> like, okay. I have so many questions outlined for you, but I do want to talk about nutrition because I, yeah, I also, yeah. um, you know, want to hit a little bit on that. And, you know, both of us were schooled in more like the feminine form of Ayurveda. And I would love, you know, I'll just kind of share what we had chatted about right before we started. And I have my, um, my sparkling water. And I was, I was telling Marissa, I was like, you know, nope, I know this is not Ayurvedic, but I'm having my cold. It came from the fridge water. 
And I would love to share, you know, what you said back to me. And because I think this informs so much of your own take on Ayurvedic nutrition and the dogma that can come with it. So I'd love for you to kind of tackle that. Yeah. And I'm so, I'm so glad you were game for us to talk about that. Um, You know, I think, first of all, it's so important to know that a teacher or a practitioner, um, we're human. Um, We have our sparkling water and our chocolate and whatever. Um, And the reason I say that is because the 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 tendency to be dogmatic or rigid or perfectionistic is alive and well in Ayurveda. Mm -hmm. And so Andrea and I were just chatting and kind of catching up and she took a sip from her drink and she was like, oh, like it's not Ayurvedic. I know I shouldn't be having it. (laughs) And I was like, wait a second, because what she had also said was, I love this. Like, this is my favorite sparkling water. It's my special thing that I drink in the afternoon. And and that's the only time I drink it. Um, And only the season. Once it starts getting warmer, I'm like, it's seasonal for me too. (laughs) Yeah. So what I said back to her was there's a, there's a truth. There's a reality to the joy and the specialness this drink has for you and the way it's going to impact you and digest in your body. So is there a truth and a reality to the fact of Ayurvedically carbonation provokes a certain dosha and elemental constitution during a certain time of the year? Yes. But isn't Ayurveda also about finding harmony and balance and ease? And it's relational, by the way. And I don't want to be in relationship with myself or anybody or anything else if it's lacking joy. And and so what I'm getting at is if you could have the thing with joy, with consciousness, with intentionality, it's going to land in your cells totally differently than if you're looking at it and you're saying or thinking to yourself, absolutely not. This is off limits. This is going to harm my elemental constitution. I'm a bad yogini. I'm a bad Ayurveda practitioner, right? Um, Versus this approach of I'm human. I live in 2022. There's access to flavored sparkling water in the time that I live in. And it happens to be something that I really love. So taking that approach uh, in the feminine way, in an Ayurvedic nutrition way is really, really fundamental to the work I do with people because the Western approach or a dogmatic, rigid Ayurveda approach tends to polarize and tends to generalize. So it'll sound something like, this is good for you and this is bad for you. This is on your your list of things you can have and this is on your no-no list. Um, right? Clean versus not, healthy versus unhealthy. Um, And what we can fall into there is a lack of relationship and attunement with ourselves and our actual needs. Um, We start to attach identity to this nutritional perspective of how can I do it right? How can I do it better? How can I be perfect? Um, And really, I think that comes from a very patronizing and patriarchal place, especially towards women and folks who identify as women. Um, So the way I work with it is completely different than that Mm -hmm. (laughs) and says, "What what does health mean to you? What does vibrancy feel like in your body? And Ayurvedically, that's something we call svasta, right? Which means to be seated in the center of oneself with compassion, with ease, with balance and clarity. Um, and that's so beautiful on its own, but it's, it's so beautiful in the context of food and body because what that means is we're all different. We all have different bodies. We all have different needs. We all have different preferences, et cetera. Um, so what is quote healthy for me on this day <laughs> Mm. is likely going to be different than what is quote healthy for you on this day. And like, isn't that great? Because 
when we can approach nutrition from that perspective, we can come into a place of nourishment rather than this place of trying to effort, trying to conform to a standardized structure that doesn't take the individual into account. And that doesn't take into account what makes sense for you based on your experience right now, what feels good to you. Um, Ayurveda, particularly, I think the feminine form Ayurveda gives us so much space and so much permission to redefine our relationship to food and our bodies. For me, it was really Ayurveda that changed the game more than anything else I had done. Um, we get this entire set of descriptive language in Ayurveda that takes us away from good, bad, right, wrong, right? So we get more nuanced about the qualities of the food, the way the food interacts with our body and digestion. And then we also have this really beautiful and powerful elemental and emotional understanding of food that everything I put into my mouth is representative of certain elemental uh, combinations. And because of the qualities in those elemental combinations, they're representative of a certain emotional hunger as well. Mm. So my approach is to integrate embodied and impactful Ayurveda alongside somatic inquiry, because working with food, working with body, working with nutrition can be very vulnerable, very complex, and often will involve a lot of the, the nervous system repair and the trauma resolution that we talked about earlier. Working with the food is hardly ever, I can't even think of one person where it's, working with the food is just physical, right? So I take a lot of time to explore and support the emotional and energetic side of the various hungers as well. Mm. I mean, that's, well, I recorded a solo show now months ago, but um, it was kind of about that. Cause what I'm seeing, I think a lot of the, some of the stuff that I think goes wrong with food and nutrition in particular is if I'm looking at personal training. So a lot of the times trainers, a, we're not supposed to give nutrition advice. Like that's, we're not supposed to, but a lot of times people expect your trainer, you should give us advice. But personally, what I have found, and I've shared this on that episode and I just, I mean, cause I know a ton of trainers cause I've been around this space and some of the trainers that I know have the most messed up relationship with food that I, I mean, horribly. And then I'm like, okay, and now we're giving advice to clients that to me doesn't make sense where I'm like, how are we qualified to, well, one, we're not. And two, aren't we just perpetuating the cycle of like, now we're passing this on to clients. Um, and so I would know, and Ayurveda can be the same thing. Like if you haven't kind of healed your own stuff, like, I think you're kind of just giving yourself like, here's the food list. If you're a Pitta, eat this, don't eat this. If you're a Vata, you know, same thing. Cause I think a lot of people, at least, you know, a few years ago, people were like, here, just give me the list. I want the list mm -hmm. and to be told what to do and not do the intuitive. Like how can you kind of, or how do you kind of get over that hump? Because I think a lot of times in the West, we are programmed to like, here's the list, here's the diet, follow this. Um, you know, how can you kind of help people get past that to learn, to kind of trust themselves? It really starts with a lot of inquiry um, and a lot of debunking of where is the message coming from? So if we take the, the personal trainer example or even like the social media personality example, I think there are, there are many more pitfall, pitfalls and vulnerabilities now of you know, again, that needing to do it right or that needing to do it perfect. Or if I eat this way, then maybe I'll be like this person and I'll get the things that they have in their life, you know, and yes. I want that. So I'm going to do it. Um, and aside from, you know, the social media or the personal trainer, maybe not exploring their own um, 
this harmonious relationship to food and then perpetuating that harm onto others. You also have the fact that you said they're not qualified, right? They're not trained in how to guide people through diet or how to work with disordered eating. Um, so a lot of what I do with people is debunking a lot of that. I, I just had someone email me and say, um, I don't feel good in my body. I feel the desire to shift the way I feel and like stop eating these foods because they're not working for me. And here's how I know that. Um, what I want to do is a juice cleanse for three days. Mm. And, you know, I, I approached that and I said, totally valid. Like, I think you have a lot of wisdom around wanting to shift the behavior and the reasons why you want to shift it sound super healthy to me. Like I'm not concerned about any disordered eating or eating disorder stuff. Um, but I had to explain a little bit of why doing something like that actually wouldn't be supportive now or in the long term. Um, so there's a lot of re-education that goes on and there's also a lot of practicality that needs to be considered. If someone hands you a food list that says yes versus no, um, but you hate half the foods on the yes list or they're not available in your area or whatever that may be, um, that's not gonna work for you. Again, there's also this reality of like, we live in 2022, like <laughs> you're gonna drink sparkling water sometimes. You're gonna have things from you know, your dosha list that is telling you you're not supposed to have. And so where I come in is like, okay, if we know we're going to do that, how can we have this balanced approach, right? This idea of svasta, where it's like almost like 80-20 sort of a thing, where most of the time I'm doing my balancing stuff, right? And I'm tending to my disposition and my vulnerability. And then because I'm doing that, and I'm in this place of ease and harmony, I can have the sparkling water or I can have the chocolate and it's not gonna throw me totally out of whack. And then when I do have it, right, I bring in that intentionality. I bring in that sacred nature of enjoyment and pleasure and that can shift the whole thing too. Like I talked with our teacher, Katie, about this a few months ago, you know, she said, I had a burger, I split a burger with my best friend and it was like the best. And I, I had, yeah, only part of the burger and it, it didn't bother me. And it's like, right, because you're with your beloved, you're having something you really think is tasty and your digestion isn't just physical, it's emotional. And so when we literally come to the table <laughs> um, with, with ease, with joy, with gratitude, with awareness, that alone shifts the thing you're about to put in your body. So it's, it's such a multifaceted process, really. Mm. Yes. I mean, as I've told that to, to clients in the past as well, I'm like, you know, she really liked, you know, chocolate. And I was like, have that piece of chocolate. Just don't feel guilt. Cause before yeah. she was like, I just, I just guiltily eat, you know, mm -hmm. whatever treat. And I'm like, no, enjoy it savor it, like really mm -hmm. notice like what's going on. And she was like, wow, that was such a more pleasurable experience, you know, like not beating myself up about every little morsel that goes in our mouths. And I think, I mean, that little hidden thing is such a big thing. If we actually practice it rather than beat ourselves up about every, uh, again, if we put in quotations as the West to describe it, you know, bad food choice, because that's what I think a lot of us are like, oh, yep. I, I know what that means. How can I get my body? Like, how can I get away from that? And that's something that I think it, do, it does take time. It's not, you know, you either personally, I've always kind of been like that since I kind of had to get over like, and as I told you earlier, I'm like, from like bulimia, I'm like, I just kind of was like, okay, this isn't working. Like, what can I do before? Like counting every little morsel that I'm going to eat and putting it in baggies. I mean, that's what I did in high school. Didn't know that was like bad until I'm like, oh, this is actually, that's disordered eating and then had issues in college. And then I just, I don't, I don't have any idea how I broke free, but somehow I did. And I'm like, I, I don't, I didn't have that guilt. And so I think a lot of that is, is like getting to that other side. And it's for some, I think therapy can definitely be beneficial. Um, you know, and I think a lot of what you're talking about with the semantic therapy, I think it's like this hidden thing. And I'm like, I want to study more. <laughs> I want to study yeah. this more. Cause I'm like, 
I, I really love, you know, I study psychology and in college as well as sports and exercise science. So it's like right up my alley with just the movement and just like getting in there. Cause I think there's so mm-hmm. much, there's so much there. And I would love to talk to you for like another two hours, <laughs> but I know this would be like the longest episode I've done in a while. So I um, need to land this plane, but I maybe need to have Marissa back on so we can dive into more topics. Cause this has been wonderful. Um, but I want to know people like, how can I work with Marissa? Where can people find you? Um, social media website, all the things. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at in motion. It's L-O-K-A-H, like the Sanskrit. And my website is inlocamotion.com. I have a newsletter that you can sign up for too. Um, I do a couple of free offerings throughout the year, some groups. I see clients one-on-one. So many, many ways to connect. I love that. Okay. Well, I want to know what uh, what your weekly challenge is going to be to everyone this week. So I think... I want to go a little deeper into something that was sparked um, through our conversation and then offer it as the challenge, which is coming back to this feminine approach to Ayurveda, the feminine form, and coming back to really the, the idea of not only emotional hunger, but spiritual hunger and the divine or the light um, within each of us. And so practice I love, which we'll call a challenge is based on the idea that um, you don't restrict offerings to the divine or to the goddess, right? You don't go, oh, you know what? You can't have this because it has too many carbs or fat or sugar or whatever. Like, no, you actually do the opposite, right? Like here is bounty, here is variety, here is abundance because the abundance in physical form that I can offer you through this food reflects your abundant presence in my life. So I give it back to you. Mm. Um, So with that understanding in place, I think a great way to begin a great challenge is to take a moment before you eat, even if it's your sparkling water and you pause and you pray, Mm. you offer a blessing Um, I know sometimes there can be some charge around a word like prayer. And if that's the case, can you consider it as a contemplative practice that allows you to hear yourself and other people and spirit more clearly and fully? Um, Yeah, I'm in a course right now. And the facilitator said, prayer is the quiet time that is your rendezvous with God. Mm. And I just loved that because... It's not just about talking to God, right? It's also about listening. Mm. And so I think taking that quiet moment before you uh, engage with your meal can create a huge ripple effect. And if you do it, I would love to hear, you know, what what comes up for you. Um, And if you need suggestions on how to pray or bless or give gratitude for your food, please reach out. I have many. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you, Marissa, for sharing that and sharing your wisdom. Um, It was such an honor to get to talk with you. And I'm so excited that we finally got to come on the podcast. Yes. Thank you so much. I love this. And I'm really grateful for you for holding space and being so willing. Yay. And everyone go out there and spread your peaceful power.